Ladies and gentlemen, Wakandans and War Dogs, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the Movie Autopsy Podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And with us today, a new friend of the show, my old buddy, the Duggernaut himself, Doug Davenport. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And today we are going to be talking about the, dare I say it, the most revolutionary, most important movie. Shut the fuck up, Ben Shapiro. Black Panther, <laughs> the 2018 Marvel I need to stop saying bonanza, extravagant. Like, all those anza words are not working for me anymore. <laughs> but no, it's the latest Marvel film. It's uh, it's Black Panther. It's a fucking phenomenon, and we're going to be talking about it. Uh, Ryan Coogler is the director, starring Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan. And a lot, there's a lot of actors here. A lot. And, yeah, uh, a lot. It's a ride. So, real fast, uh, let's kind of talk about what this movie is. And give us a little bit of context for where we are. So this is a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Which means it's part of the greater Marvel storyline and arc. This is not a film that exists in a vacuum. Even though I think, you know, it's kind of, it kind of does well on its own. It stands Mm -hmm. on its own two legs. But it is still connected to other things. So uh, let's talk about kind of where we are personally, each of us, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And also, like, kind of where it is. Because, like, I think by this point, anyone who's listening to the podcast, and I don't want to make presumptions, but this is a film podcast. We're going to know a bit about the MCU and all that. It's been 10 years. This is, what, the 18th film, I think it is? Something I like that. I think so. It's like yeah. the 18th or 19th film. And, In 10 uh, years, right? We've been with these characters. Yeah, it, yeah, like we, 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 it's yeah. Iron Man was two thousand eight, dude. Wow. Yeah, we're getting old. Anyways, <laughs> so this is. Uh, I'll start. I'll start then. Uh, the MCU is something that I find myself actually kind of waning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really excited when Iron Man came out and when that started becoming a thing with big continuity. But reflecting back, I don't think it has aged particularly well. And when because we were looking at doing Marvel movies as, like, lead-up or trying to do them as a series and trying to look at them in the podcast as this kind of new chapter in filmmaking and so on. And the thing is, there's not a lot of them I actually want to rewatch. Uh, you know, Iron Man 1 is kind of the genesis and progenitor. And then, you know, Civil War, uh, Winter Soldier, Thor, Ragnarok. There's a couple, like... They haven't aged particularly well, and in particular, the really big events, uh, you know, Avengers and Avengers 2, I think have actually aged very poorly. Oh, yeah. And, absolutely, so that is one thing is, it's kind of suffering from a lot of the same issues as the comics, where these big events are really exciting when you have this uncertainty and this anticipation coming into, you know, when the hype train is building, it's so exciting, and then the film itself kind of just doesn't it does not necessarily that it doesn't stand up to a second viewing, but that it's missing like a key piece of itself that is not something that can be replicated. Replic- it just happens. Uh, no, absolutely, and that's part of it. Is like it's like a film with a really good twist. If it's a very very good film, you can still watch it again, and the twist can inform it on a second viewing and so on. But there are some films that the twist is the entire film, and it's just like, yeah, it's all right. I know what's going to happen, and that kind of takes away the excitement from it. You know, the Shyamalan school. Of yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. Hey, oh, 
So, uh, what about you guys? Do you guys have any like personal like connection to the Marvel universe? What are your favorites, and kind of how have you come along? Because like I know like there's a lot of people who actually didn't jump on the Marvel train until much later. Um, I'm going to give this to Doug. So, Doug, what do you think about this? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, my personal connection to superheroes, like, I've always was into them growing up. I mean, um, I don't remember a time when I wasn't into superheroes, but I definitely, like, like Silvio was saying, like, I found myself, like, kind of waning in enthusiasm, almost just, like, brand, um, whatchamacallit, brand fatigue, but also, like, the only thing really keeping me going to see these movies was was brand loyalty, pretty much. It was like, uh, well, I like these characters growing up, so I guess I'll see the 10th version of Spider-Man. Even though Homecoming, I mean, sometimes it's better to go in with no or lowest possible expectations, I've realized, with some of these movies. Um, because, um, like, I, I was trying to jotting down a, a list here of what when you are saying, like, um, movies you would actually want to rewatch. Most of them, I would just want to rewatch like a cool action scene and not the whole movie. Um, like, like that would go for even Thor Ragnarok or like Winter Soldier. Or, well, I could rewatch all of Winter Soldier. But uh, there's most of them, it's just like, yeah, I'm either just digging the specific aesthetic for like the, a key scene or the way that that, you know, sequence was put together. Um, although I'm kind of a weirdo for Spider-Man Homecoming, I would rather rewatch the high school scenes as opposed to the action scenes. Because uh, all the character beats in that were done so perfectly, I thought. And I wouldn't say say the action was forgettable. It just wasn't... It didn't feel like the, the important part of the movie, which was smart, because Spider-Man and Peter Parker isn't about beating up heroes. It's about... I mean, it's not beating, <laughs> beating up heroes. It's not about, like, punching a villain, you know? Like, he's about trying to do... Uh, that's why I... Spider-Man is probably... I'm pretty biased, though, because, like, I always was way into the comics, all the cartoons. Like, I just identified with Spider-Man because he just seemed like a hero that, despite all his numerous failures, and he fails so much... He fucks up, like, all the time. <laughs> so much. But he... he he keeps trying, he, despite that. And there's just, like, just about that op raw optimism and, like, willingness. I mean, some could say it's cheesy, like, kind of Boy Scoutish, like, oh, he's just... But it's not cheesy in the way that I always found, like, Superman off-putting, that, like, it, it didn't... It felt, like, unearned or kind of, like, propaganda. I never got that from Spider-Man. Like, Spider-Man just felt like the quintessential working-class hero that, like, is flawed because he's human, but he is always trying to do right. Yeah. Yeah. I went off on a tangent uh, there. Uh, back to... <laughs> uh, I love Panther. No, I think yeah. that's totally fine. I think that's totally fine, because that's kind of... Both of what you guys are talking about is sort of what I've been thinking, too. I started out with the MCU, so that's the cinematic universe itself, and just really enjoying that. I grew up reading comics as a kid, so I have read the Black Panther comics. I've also read World of Wakanda. Um, and, you know, like, I feel like the MCU has kind of been waning a little bit. Spider-Man Homecoming was a bit of a bright spot for me. I also liked Winter Soldier yes. and Thor Ragnarok. But like you guys are saying, the other ones... Um, they're not quite aging up as well as I think maybe Kevin Feige thinks they are, so... I want to rewatch Incredible I... Hulk and see how that holds up, because it's kind of the forgotten oh, stepchild. 
It doesn't? It really well, does. A couple things. Yeah. A couple things here. Uh, one, and one thing that I did want to come back to is a second round of questions, kind of, is also, like, our relationship with the Marvel comics itself. Uh, but what I think is kind of interesting is how these films are linked, I think, is actually a similar problem to, like, the Die Hard franchise, for example, because Die Hard 1 is its own thing. But this next two Die Hards, 2 and 3, you know, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Die Harder, those were different films were, that were written as their own standing projects and then were converted into Die Hard movies. And that's kind of how the Marvel films worked initially. Whereas, you know, hey, we'll do an Iron Man movie. Hey, we'll do a Hulk movie. And they were trying to make them these standalone things. And I think that was one big problem with these movies going forwards was that the connective tissue between the movie started creeping too far and too deeply into the films themselves. And I honestly think it started with the Disney, uh, per, not to blame, I don't want to be one of those conspiracy dudes like that's like, oh, Disney. But like, I think after Disney bought Marvel, because Incredible Hulk and the first Iron Man were pre-Disney, uh, that was when they could still make solo Hulk films, because I don't know if you guys know this, Universal still owns the rights to a solo Incredible Hulk movie, and that's why we're probably not going to get... That's why they've been sneaking the Hulk arcs into, like, Thor Ragnar. Like, instead of getting a Planet Hulk movie or World War Hulk, we're just going to get him as, like, a side character in someone else's story because Universal held on to the rights. Yeah. Which Disney totally could buy those back. They have... They got... That's, like, chump change for them. They they just bought the, the characters back from Fox. Like, I feel like they could... That's... Yeah. Well, they didn't just buy the characters back. They bought Fox. They pulled a Batman there. Yeah. <laughs> Batman or Panther at the end of this where he's like, yes, I bought that and that. And also this whole city. <laughs> yeah, and uh, real fast, I want to go back to comics for just a second here uh, because this is something that's going to flavor, not flavor, this is something that's going to color how I'm going to talk about things, I think, a lot, is that I, I'm, I, okay, gatekeeping nerd shit boys are not going to call me a comics fan. They never will. And I'm okay with that. But I like comics as a medium and I like Marvel and I like DC. But the thing is, I am actually not a huge fan of long form continuity series. I think that the best stories have beginnings and ends. And the the drawing out and the stretching of this material really does injure it in the long run. Uh, like, they did, they killed Logan a couple of years ago, and finally, three years later, it's like, they brought him back. I said they would. There's no gravity, there's no things. And it also leads to issues like comic time, where things are stretched out, and, like, everything always happened just five years ago, even though the comics have been running since the 60s or whatever. And it's had a lot of problems. And I think we're starting to see that kind of fatigue with these comic franchises as films. But it's also forcing some realistic considerations, like actors aging, which is kind of counteracting that in a weird way. So... Like, I'm big into comics, but I like more, like, independent presses like Image or IDW. I like standalone stories that are not necessarily connected to a greater universe. I appreciate great universes as a storytelling technique and as kind of an exercise. But ultimately, I think this kind of focus on continuity and on interconnectedness is... I think less important than having a good core story. And in many cases, you start running out of space to tell those stories. And I think we, we're kind of starting to see that with the MCU. And we'll talk about this more later. But I just wanted to ask you guys briefly about, you know, kind of your relationships to comics. Because, like, that's the other thing. I don't read current comics. I don't... The, the way they do business is terrible. I love trades. I love trade paperbacks. I love complete arcs. 
I love collections, and I just don't think that live storytelling, serialized storytelling, is a good for especially for film because these films are distinct, discrete products, and not like a TV series or something. Right. You know? But even for TV, I would as much as I love this golden age of TV, which we're arguably still in with with scripted serialized storytelling. There should be an end. There should be an endpoint in mind. Like the shows, shows shouldn't be designed to go on forever. Even though that was the old business model, because you want like you know the ad revenue from whatever you know when when you can get it syndicated. But like the story should have an end goal. Like Breaking Bad. They may not have known they were going to get exactly five seasons, but they had an arc in mind, clearly. that was like they wanted to take Walt from point A to point B, and they made they were very efficient with how they did that. And I still hold that as, like, one of the high standards in, in you know, uh, these prestige dramas. But, like, yeah, the best shows, even if it's, like, hyper-serialized, you still should, like know where you're going and have an endpoint, which fits more better for TV or even an anthology series. Like, uh, well, not a series, but like, like the Animatrix is probably still one of my favorite, like movies, arguably better than the original Matrix movies, because like you just take this universe that has parts hinted of in the movies, but you can explore every little nugget. Like, I want to see that done with Blade Runner. Like, I want to see a Blade Runner anthology uh, either animated or live action series. Like every character in the background of 2049, I wanted to see, like, hey, what does that guy do when Ryan Gosling's not talking to him? Yeah. So let's actually get into the review because we could talk about comics. This isn't a comics podcast. Hey, coming soon from Doc FM. <laughs> no. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and say I think this is my favorite Marvel movie. Agreed. Of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at least, I would have to go back and revisit uh i guess some of the x-men or pre you know marvel empire things but i'm pretty sure i agree yeah definitely of the mcu i think you'd have to fight with logan probably a bit if we were including marvel as a broader brand than the mcu but specifically of the disney marvel mcu i think it's this and this and uh winter soldier i think i think this works better as a standalone film where uh Winter Soldier works better as part of a bigger continuity, and they are different films. Uh, whereas I think Thor Ragnarok is also up there in my top three, but I think probably a little bit low because I think it works better as a standalone. It's not really that well integrated into the series, and it's more of a comedy movie. So it's something that I less want to come back and visit because, like, when I think of action movies, I think of something like, in many cases, I want to go back to and watch again and again and again, and kind of, like I have that thirst for action. I don't really have that for Thor Ragnarok, even though it's one of my favorite movies that they put out. I thought the action was very well done in it, though, and I would rewatch like whenever it's available on. Well, actually, it is already on digital or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, I want to rewatch some choice uh, action scenes because it wasn't just uh, the the humor was forced in some parts, and like, yeah, that was still dope, but also. For I want to go, not off topic, but I want to circle back to something you were saying earlier about franchises that, like, started as a standalone thing and didn't plan to be part of a connected, like, the, the connective tissue of a universe, like the original Die Hard. And I, fe I feel like there were, like, other stuff, action franchises like that in the 80s, where it was, like, the first movie was succeeded the studio's expectations, so it was like, oh, shit, we gotta make this, like, a money-making franchise now. Like, Rambo. 
the first Rambo and Die Hard are actually based off books, and I didn't even know this until years later, and I read like a cracked article or something on it. But the first, the 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 end of the first Rambo book ends with John Rambo committing suicide, and that scene where he's crying to his commander, and he's clearly experiencing a PTSD breakdown. Like the whole First Blood is a movie about PTSD. It's like Deer Hunter. Uh, you know, like he comes back from war and he like, you know, starts another war with the National Guard just because like the local law enforcement and other people, society just won't leave him alone or let him be. And he can't like turn it off, you know. So and, and, but then but then they turn into an action franchise like, OK, we're sending this clearly unhinged dude back to Vietnam. <laughs> That's where he needs to be. Such a terrible idea. Let's give him a gun. And the authority to kill indiscriminately. So, Annie, uh, what's your review of Black Panther? Uh, my review of Black Panther, it, I guess, is, I mean, it's power to the people, obviously. But um, I think this is a really solid film. I think it can kind of stand on its own. And I was sort of happy to not see them try and do tie-ins with Thanos in this um, in particular because I think the Thanos designs look stupid and I'm actually <laughs> a little bit apprehensive now for, um, Infinity War as a result of that. You don't like working class but Thanos? Also... <laughs> oh, Without God. his helmet? He's not even, like, working class. I just feel like the, the design on his face, like, he's not even, like, intimidating any longer. He just looks like a a light blue dude with some forms of scarring on his face. I, yeah, I agree. I think he was at his most intimidating, his most intimidating when he was a background villain in Guardians, when he was like the emperor pulling the strings behind Ronan, who was like, now that I think about it, Guardians wasn't the best with their villains, but I like that Star Wars S structure of Ronan being like the film's main villain. Uh, but, but like Thanos kind of like, you know in the shadows yeah there's kind of like a bigger batter dude okay yeah i think it was the best movie in the mcu but also probably one of the best ones i mean besides maybe the original iron man or like we were saying like iron man incredible hulk before the disney takeover of the franchise um where like they were just making standalone movies that you know, happen to kind of work as a part of a cohesive universe. Panther succeeds very much so on that, like, you don't need to, like, I can recommend this to anybody, and I don't mean, like, okay, first you need to see Civil War and this Avengers movie and this and that before you can know what's happening. I mean, they reference the events of Civil War because obviously uh, the death of the previous Panther is a very important moment for T'Challa, but at the same time, I almost prefer the way the panther movie conveys that information because oh my god the ancestral plane scenes were oh, yes. oh, I'm, I'm making a, a a kissing mouth noise like an italian chef would like it's <laughs> mm, that's how I, yeah, that's how i feel about the ancestral ancestral it's a spicy meat <laughs> yeah it's a good to show <laughs> uh okay um, so let's, um, just briefly, I want to go into the toe tag and just kind of describe what this movie is. I'm assuming a lot of people are going to have seen this, but for those who don't, this is the story of, because it's actually kind of interesting to define what this is, because I don't think this is actually an origin story in the kind of classical sense of the word. Um, but it is kind of an origin story. It's a 
kind of a it's not an origin, but I think it is a codification of this character. It is this important event that is, I think, early in his career, but clearly it's not his first outing. It's it, it sits in that weird space. It is a non-origin origin story of Black Panther. That that is what this film is. That's my tagline, and it's awful, but it's kind of weird compared to the typical Marvel fair. I 100% agree because also at this point in superhero fr- franchises or just superhero movies in general, even a standalone thing, I find the origin stories to be the most redundant part. Because even if it's like a hero I'm not super versed in, they repeat so many of the same beats that I'm just like, okay, let's just get to the part where he gets his powers and does like the real story begins. Uh, but Panther wasn't an origin s- story like you're saying, but was... Because it, like, wasn't his first rodeo, or, uh, but for, like, a better term, I don't think there was any rodeoing in the movie, but, uh, he, he, it was, it was, it was, like, the learning curve or experience of a hero becoming who they're meant to be, but at the same time, it was so much more than that, because they were establishing, like, this whole world and culture of Wakanda, so maybe... That's, it's more of like a Wakandan origin story in that sense. Yeah, I think that, that might be a good tagline. Yeah, that's a good tagline. Like, this is not a Black Panther origin story. This is the story of Wakanda. Wakanda, hashtag Wakanda forever. Uh, I mean, and can we spoil the movie? I assume people who are going to watch yeah, it. Yeah, no, we are. Yeah. We are oh, yeah. We, we go into this with the assumption that we, it's completely spoiled. We cannot really cater to a non-spoiled or Okay, perfect. Because, like, and it was most noticeable that this wasn't a Black Panther movie at the part when they killed him. Because even though I never expected him to actually be dead, it was like, wait, he has to show up in the next movie in the next Black Panther franchise. Uh, that, like, he t- it totally became about the other characters in the movie. Like, it was just about Wakanda and the power struggle when Killmonger was taking over and not Black Panther was AWOL for, like... I wasn't I wasn't looking at my phone to keep track, but like I don't know, it felt like a half hour at least that we were getting uh of all the other character arcs, which was amazing. Well, and I think so if I would have to do like a toe tag for this movie, I think weirdly I would kind of pull something from Thor Ragnarok, which was this idea that Asgard is not a place, it's a people. Yeah. Um, and I saw this come through in Black Panther quite a bit. Wakanda is not a place, it's a people. And in many ways, the story of the Black Panther in this film is really a story about a family that's negotiating these very difficult interpersonal struggles um, in the wake of the death of, of their patriarch, of the dad. Well, and of the cover-up of other deaths in the family. Like, you thought your family had drama. My dad my dad never killed my uncle and tried to cover it up and leave my cousin behind. Uh, so, you know, that was like some raw emotional shit that we, I felt like we haven't gotten with any of the other Marvel movies. Absolutely. So I think this leads into dissection, actually, because we've been praising this movie a lot. We've... Pretty much all universally love it. So let's actually talk about what we do love about these films. And uh, first things first, I'm going to go ahead and really hats off, even though I don't wear a fucking hat, to uh, 
<laughs> to Hannah Beachler for uh, the production design and the costume design because aesthetically this movie is unlike anything we've ever seen. It's Afrofuturism with the set design, with the CGI for the city, with the kind of story it's telling, with the costumes. Like, here's here's the one thing I really loved, and it's a weird thing, is I love T'Chaka's Black Panther costume. Because you know what that looks like? That looks like what would have happened if in 1992 you gave a production design team millions of dollars to develop a Black Panther costume. That's exactly what that shit would look like. Because it actually looks really bad in the exact perfect way that captures that kind of aesthetic. Like, you could see that standing alongside, like, you know, Clooney's Batman. You can oh, absolutely no. see that. No, not nipples, well, Batman. Well, I, I, no, I, I not, it wasn't that bad. I get what Silvio's saying, though. It wasn't nipple, Clooney bad, but it was like that <laughs> that cheesy 90s superhero costume aesthetic, which was perfect. Well, maybe more than 90s, because like how t- technologically advanced is Wakanda? Like Culturally, we're in 2018, but they're like, what, at least... Well, there, there's even... They acknowledge that, that the rest of the world is catching up technologically, but... On average, wouldn't Wakanda be like fifty years ahead culturally? Or I'd say it's it's probably more like a hundred years ahead in terms of like the technology and yeah. stuff, which is something that is kind of gets brought through in the comics. So well, that's something that we got that gets into the weeds a little bit about the level of technology because remember this is the MCU. We're living in a universe where Tony Stark exists. It's gonna get weird. Like look at uh, Homecoming, where you know the Vulture is taking all these like alien artifacts and building amateur weapons out of them that are way higher grade than anything the military uses today is like this is part of the problem that i want to get into later is that the mcu is not reality yeah oh yeah no and people treating it as such like that's actually a major problem that you find in terms of when people do film analysis um they take the image as reality and it's not i mean it's fun to think about on a hypothetical level at least that like uh, what what society would do with this technology and how it would be abused. But obviously, the reality would be so much worse. Like, if we had Tony Stark. Like, if Elon Musk had an Iron Man suit. Holy oh, no. shit. No. Oh, my God. No. Or if, It'd be way worse than Corvette in space. Yeah. So, I, I, I want to I ask you guys, what were your favorite costumes? Of... Black Panther or just the Marvel Universe or well Black Panther. Well Panther, Panther has my favorite costumes of the Marvel Universe. So uh obviously the new suit that his sister makes for him was dope. Uh but like just like all the little detail like on the street level scenes in his little console in his little Jedi console throne room, like every I don't think from a production design standpoint there was a single bad costume. Like, I never saw anything, and we'll probably talk about this with uh, audience reception to it, especially, like, white audiences, like, like the, the, lip, the lip ring guys, or the lip disc, like, that was, that looked amazing, but, like... That guy was so dope when he matches it with his earplugs and also with his suit. With the fucking it's green like, that is suit. Yeah. That dude was baller. I would have him on my yeah. council, for sure. I don't even remember any lines of dialogue he said. Probably. <laughs> but he's... I think the only thing he says is, who are you? <laughs> yes. Which is a... Ve- but it's like the coolest thing that you've ever heard. Yeah. So. I mean, I would trust him on my council of advisors. I don't know. He seemed, he seemed trustworthy. 
What about you, Annie? You got any standout for com- for uh, costumes? Um, the standout costumes for me were the ones worn by the Dora Milaje. I really, really loved Okoye's costume. Um, like the the epaulets that they gave her, and like the guards that they gave her. Um, I also really enjoyed the scenes where she was out of her Milaje costume. So like the scene in the casino where she has to wear this, this this dress and this just terrible wig that she hates and that like kind of doesn't work for and her. uses as a weapon um, she uses her hairpiece yeah, as a weapon it's so good she uses a wig as a weapon and oh. i i was just i was charmed and so deeply delighted by all of that stuff and the stuff i the actually want to say one thing about that dress that i really love that is kind of a weird thing is like there's like a secondary layer to it that's kind of like gossamer fabric where it's like this really light see-through red fabric and that moves with the wind so much more than the rest of her dress. It's almost like a motion trail and there's only like a couple shots that really highlight it but it's such a good subtle like visual element of it that is I am absolutely in love with. Well, if we're going to talk about the cinematography, I'm sure, but like in that one take well, I'm not, I wasn't there when they filmed it, so they could have cheated and edited it to look like one take. But in the casino action scenes where she's, like, spearing the, the dudes with, uh, you know, with, with her spear and then, like, jumping off the balcony and it's all one take. Like you said, it's like a fluid motion trail with her dress that, like, just made it look so dope. Yeah. Um, the other thing, and uh, another costume I really dug was uh, Dr. Claw's. Ulysses. Doctor Claw. Yeah, he's not a doctor in this. No, I think. let's let's, let's, let's call him Doctor Claw though. That just sounds that sounds better. No, no, because no, that, that's that's who he is in the comics, right? He's like he's got like the sonic. Weapon Who's hand, the whatever. Inspector Isn't Gadget? He, like made of solid sound or something in that. Yeah, no, I think in the comics he was like made of solid sound for a few years or something. It's kind of dumb. Anyways, but um. Because I, I love, first of all, Andy Serkis put in a really great performance as oh, him. He's, he's very, wonderful. like, aggressively friendly in a way that I really like. But also, the really but wide collar, the vest. Yeah, the really wide collar, the vest, the kind of loose tie. And here's a weird thing. Like, the, the best way I can describe his costume is it's very butch. Yeah. Very much so. Like, very much so. Like they were ch- like yeah. I know it'll piss off the fans, but I would love to see him played by like a large aggressive woman. <laughs> It'd be great. Same haircut, same tattoos, same craziness, but just like a large, loud, aggressive woman. I think that'd be a great role. But the continuity, shut up! It'd be great, and you know it. It would be great, but I also loved Andy Serkis because obviously Killmonger is the is the main antagonist of the film. But like we definitely need Ulysses Claw. Uh, for to be the impetus of all the events that that happen and he was just fun to watch in the same way like there's something so terrifying about villains like him and even though i'm not going to say this stacks up to heath ledger's joker but i love when villains are just you can tell they're having fun being evil like they know that's like 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 it's their job is to is to be evil and they just love like (laughs) like the joker said he loves his job like that's just like what they live and breathe to do. Oh, no, absolutely. He has a fantastic energy. And that's something that Andy Serkis really brings, I think, to every performance he does, is he is such a kind of method actor, and, like, he invests himself in a character. Um, When you look at, like, behind-the-footage scenes of, like, Lord of the Rings and stuff, he's just diving in... Like, he's in a mocap suit diving in frigid water. It's insane. Or for Planet of the Apes Uh, and Caesar. All his roles are different, too. Oh, no, he's amazing. 
Has Andy Serkis ever done like a bad a bad movie? I'm looking up his IMDb right now. I, well, he's I, he's he's done some movies that aren't. I think he's done some movies that aren't great, but his performances are always. That's fun. what I mean. Like, I even like him as Snoke. Yeah. Let's talk about Michael B. Jordan. Oh, oh my gosh, his yeah. his performance in this movie is just—it's so nuanced. There is a kind of emotional depth to Michael B. Jordan's craft as an actor that is just so wonderful and in gripping um his performance was heartbreaking and then by other turns it was funny and he kind of has this dark sense of humor Mm -hmm. to a certain extent um and and so to see that that combined with his swagger and that one shot where we go from things being literally upside down as the camera shifts upward to uh as we're following him walking towards the throne of wakanda like there's a kind of swagger to that that is just so wonderful and the way that he delivers those lines the lines in the museum where he's talking to this museum curator about like did you buy this do you know where they got this and then at the end when he delivers that final line um about choosing death over slavery Okay, yeah, and the other thing is, like, not only does he have the swagger, but he has such a screen presence. In particular, what I want to call attention to is when he's fighting against T'Challa in the waterfall, um, he stands very tall and proud, and in comparison, T'Challa actually, with his, you know, uh, long shield and spear, he, he, he has a very crouched, very defensive posture, and it makes him feel small next to him, and holy shit, he is ripped. Yes. My God. Um, Good fucking yeah. God. You know, oh yeah, he's not to like objectify uh, any any men in the Marvel universe, but holy damn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he looks gorgeous for the role, and I love the way that they frame those scenes um, during the fight scenes. Both of their bodies take up most of the screen, and I think it makes those fight scenes very dynamic, but it also allows for, like, this juxtaposition of their two bodies. Like, T'Challa is all sleek muscle, and um, Killmonger is just absolutely ripped, and then he has this beautiful textural scarification on his body that has this kind of heartbreaking story behind it. It was just so wonderfully set up. Yeah, and the other thing is also he is so physical in the role. In particular, when you have him do this thing where he thrusts the weapons into the ground to take off his shirt, with a lot of actors that would look like a very played, very kind of artificial movement, where it's like, and now I do the cool thing, and then I do the cool thing. But it blends so naturally with him speaking, and he does it with such force and such a natural practiced motion that it feels really organic, and it feels really intimidating. Normally... I think when you have a character like taking off his shirt he's thr- as he's starting to talk shit about he's, how he's going to beat your ass, it's kind of like, oh, we get it. You're such a badass. Yes. But with Michael B. Jordan, it's just like, I want the throne. Like, I don't want to fuck with Michael Jordan. Yeah, that's that's what I loved about this compared to not just uh, Marvel movies, but other action films, like, which is, like, everything felt earned. Like, anything, even if it was, like, a played-out trope, like you said, like, the, the villain, like... And talking intimidatingly while they, you know, take clothes off or, like, they, you know, stab a weapon into the ground. It's like, it all was organic and none of it felt like, oh, they're just doing this now because this is what the action movie uh, Bible dictates that needs to happen right now. And I think that there were also some really fantastic performances from the women in this movie. In particular, I want to draw people's attention to um, Danny Guerrera 
or Gurira, who was playing um, Okoye, and Lupita Nyong'o, um, who was there as Nakia. Um, these are two wonderful performances. Okoye is, you know, like, she believes in observing um, and preserving tradition and in doing things by the rules, and Nakia is kind of like a foil to that. She believes in, in trying to do things differently. Um, and there's just a kind of wonderful strength to these characters, but also a great beauty, too. And I really appreciated the way that they wrote specifically Black women characters in this film to have that, because that is something that has been lacking from a lot of mainstream movies that I've seen in the past year, is good writing for Black women specifically. Not just Black so women, but women in general. If you think, like, the Marvel Universe specifically, like, I don't want to start a whole thing, but, like, how many... Like, I don't, <laughs> don't get me started on Black Widow in, like, the second Avengers movie specifically, but, like, I can't even count on a full hand, like, the impressive, like, strong female performances. And that's not the thing. It's, like, I'm not just giving credit to them because they're female and black and the characters were strong because all those things are true, and that's made me love the movie more. But, like, their arcs and their personality blend it so organically with the movie like you were saying his sister kind of represented the argument of yeah. like social technological progress versus traditionalism and like that right. was an important argument in the movie to have oh yeah Shuri his sister yes she definitely does that Nakia also does it um yeah. yeah. I also want to go back to Okoye for a second because she does actually have one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie where she knows in her heart that uh, Killmonger is wrong, that Killmonger is evil, and that she sh she cannot, she should not serve him, but the law is the law, and her duty, her oaths are so important that it breaks her heart to do what she must do. That is such a powerful scene. And there's like I think there's tears in her eyes there, in that scene. There were tears. It's, it's, in any other movie, again, that could have been played out and felt like the most cliche trope. It was like, okay, if you agree with, you know, who should be not be on the throne, then you should like rebel. You know, like it, it would be so obvious in another movie that I'd be screaming at the screen. It's like, come on, bitch, you need to take up arms. But like, no. I was I was like, no, she has she's I felt her conflict and her pain in that moment. It was like she clearly doesn't, in her mind, and it makes complete narrative and sense for her in the character that she doesn't really have a choice at this moment. Like, she has to go along with it. Yeah, I think this is the point where in a lesser film, uh, the royal family would convince her to come with them and then the Dora Milaje would become some kind of renegade military force. And, like, that's an easy way out. And they chose something that's specifically hard. And going back to Tears for a second, that is the other thing, because we didn't really cover this with Michael B. Jordan's performance, but the flashback scene uh, in The Land of the Dead when he's meeting his father, when he cry, when he cries, a single tear, no tears for dad, no tears for father, and they both cry. And it, it was actually this kind of, like, it, it's heartbreaking. It really, really is. And that is part of what makes him such a compelling villain. Not only is he intimidating, but he is heartbreaking and he is righteous. He's empathetic. And the beautiful part about that ancestral plane uh, flashback, besides just the visual and cinematography, was the way it was edited, that it kept going back and forth between him as a child and Michael B. Jordan. 
uh, you know, like, talking to his dad. Like, you weren't even sure, like, wait, is he experiencing a flashback, or is he talking to his dad presently in the ancestral plane? But it was both, because it was, like, time was... Yeah, it's so Time good. was, like, becoming folded on itself, and it was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Um, I also want to just praise Winston Duke for playing M'Baku, who was fantastic. His comedic uh, yes. timing was great. And it also brings me to another thing that I think is very good and also a little slippery is the accents. Because M'Baku was one of the characters who most had comedic and intimidating time. He, I think he was one of the ones who most well handled the accents. And the accents, I think, were great. Uh, Annie, we talked about this a bit, is that this feels more authentic, I think, than a lot of films where uh, actors, particularly African-American actors, try to portray African accents that are not necessarily something that they naturally fit into. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's kind of like when Americans in general try and do British accents, right? Like, so it's people doing stuff not just across ethnic lines, but across national lines. And yeah, sometimes um, people don't receive training for like region specific accents. And one of the things that I really appreciated about this movie is that the language that they're using in the movie and the some of the accents that are being used, um, M'Baku's T'Chaka's and T'Challa's sound like they're based in um, Bantu language speaking groups, which are kind of like in the southern part of Africa. So I really appreciated that. It seemed like there was attention to detail being paid here on some of the accent work. So good on you yeah. all. Um, but I do want to call back to it because while I appreciate that it was there and I think some of the actors uh, handled it very well, I do feel that... and. It, 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 there, it's, it's present in so much of the film that I have difficulty pointing to specific examples, which I think is a great thing. But I feel like there were some scenes with some actors, not the same actors all the time or just in certain scenes, but where the accents kind of inhibited their ability to act to a certain degree. And, like, I don't have specific examples. And it's I, I, I wish I did because it feels really, like unresearched and unearned as a complaint to throw in there to say, yeah, the accents kind of didn't work for me at certain points, but not have any solid concrete examples. But, uh, like, this is why I brought this up through Winston Duke, because he he nailed it. He, like, his comedic timing was great. He was intimidating. He was powerful. He was magnanimous. All of that through this accent, which gave him, like, this really distinct presence. I actually, until this conversation and looking him up, I didn't realize he was an African. <laughs> and I I mean, I've seen, I guess I've seen the actor and other stuff looking through his IMDb, like he's popped up in random shows. But yeah, it would felt like natural, just, oh, everything about this movie was, like, so organic. That, um, that yeah, normally... American actors, like, when we try and do accents, it's, like, so bad. Which is, like, is it a training thing? Because British actors can show up, or any European can disguise themselves as an American, you know, cross the border into our acting rooms and steal jobs from hardworking Americans. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that's... That's oh, where we... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's about training. Yeah, because, like, they can, oh. they can do that so well, but then when we... Like, an American tries to, to do that. You're like, ah, you... Was there anything else that we wanted to... Do we have any other, like, really critical complaints about this film? Because, like, I do want to be somewhat objective here and try to address it. Because one thing that is kind of a conversation about this film is how 
almost universally critically appraised it is. And there's been some pushback against that. By racist. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out there that all the pushbacks from, from racist. But no, now that I'm thinking about critical moments, I could say, and I won't go so far as some of the hilarious negative IMDb reviews, but I found my... <laughs> Which I, are? I found myself uh, c- kind of... Not, I, w- I never pulled out my phone to, to, check, to check the time, but I found, found myself uh, doing necessary things to get more comfortable in my theater because sometimes I would be like too cold because of the air conditioning and put another layer on. Like sometimes I didn't mind having to look away from the screen to do that towards the beginning. Not to say that it was boring or not well paced, but I could feel that that was the more origin story part of the movie. Like prior to the ceremony of him actually becoming the new black Panther, it felt it, it there, there were parts that were to me, at least it felt like, uh, I mean, maybe that's just me with superhero origin stories it's like i want to get to like the good stuff like or just do that shit like shakespeare does and like start it with the shit already going down like he's already king and then you can flash back to the other stuff but the way they did it was perfect i'm not saying they should have done that for this i'm i'm saying that like it it was slightly more noticeable with the pacing so let me see if i can put this into a more succinct words for you i think that the pacing of this film might be described as indulgent um, particularly because we have so much to showcase with, you know, what kind of culture with like the big ceremony of the passing of the torch of King. It's not that there's nothing happening. It's that we're taking time to really enjoy it. And I, I did find myself because I've watched this film twice now. Uh, the second time I saw it, I admit I didn't get as much sleep the night before, but I did kind of like burn out a little bit at the beginning and kind of pep back up towards the end. Uh, would that be accurate to describe kind of what you're trying to that's get a, out there? That's exactly what I'm saying. And, like, like I agree that it was, like, I actually love that they took the time to, like, indulge in the little detail. Because there was so much with the production design and the cinematography that, like, obviously so much care and love was put into all these tiny details that I'm, obviously they should take the time to, to show us that. But, like, I could feel, for lack of a better word, the the strain, I guess, of the pacing of, like, the more origin parts of it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with what you The way you said it was better, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to see over the next week or so um, what African reviewers might have to say about this. I do feel like I've heard a lot from Americans, Canadians, I want to see folks. the international reviews. But I would like to yeah. hear... From Africans, um, you know, like, how are they taking this movie? Um, How are they reading, you know, like, this kind of, like, diasporic aesthetic that this movie is going for by mixing different motifs from different cultures and groups? Um, How did they read this? So I'll be talking with my friends about that this week, but um, I am curious. I'm curious and very excited to see the international reception to it. Because not only does... I mean, obviously, this movie's going to make a shit ton of money um, in in America and internationally... Just that's just like a guarantee. That's the rule of the universe at this point, um, and that's really exciting to me. Though um, maybe slightly terrifying because I don't want Marvel to like bastardize the franchise going forward. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try and remain optimistic and hope that that means that Hollywood is just gonna pour hell of money into Afrofuturism epics now. 
they're just going to be like, okay, well, you know, like Warner Brothers will want to do their b- version of a Black Panther or like all these studios, Universal will be like, oh my God, we need a Afrocentric, find, find me as many black actors as you can and some spaceships. We need, we need to do this now. Well, there actually already is kind of a resurgence of that. So, for instance, the CW now has Black Lightning on. So I, I think part of what makes Black Panther a significant kind of like watershed moment in American cinema is that it is opening up a, kind of like a space for discourse with studios to be like, hey, actually, people of color make up a major portion of the audiences who go out to see films. They want to see these stories. They want to see... Um, films about themselves and films that are not centered through a white gaze necessarily. So, yeah, it's doing something really kind of powerful throughout all all of our critiques, our likes and dislikes. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to bring up from kind of this kind of technical, mechanical aspect of the film before we go into deep cuts, because we've got a lot that we want to talk about, um, is the soundtrack. Holy shit, the soundtrack. Because one thing is, we've had films about Africa. We've had... Uh, quite quite a few, but we've never seen anything with this kind of like wholehearted dive into Afrofuturism. You've had like I think the closest thing I can think of is like Gods of Egypt, which was more along the lines of go, like well that, that's the thing though is like it's pulling from like the pyramids and architecture of the time, and the music is kind of like hey it's Egyptian yo, um, but here we have these sounds that are not really based on this kind of Western tradition in the way that 99.9% of films are. And, like, I, 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 you can just hear it. You can hear the pulse of this film through every scene. And it's, it's utterly unique. I really cannot say I've ever heard a film sound like this. And that's kind of mind-boggling to me. Not a live-action movie, for sure, that I, can't, I can think of. So, like, we kind of talked about how this film, but, like, we've talked about how this film ticks. Let's talk about why it ticks and, like, what it's actually trying to say. And the first thing, we have to address the elephant in the room here, is this is a black film. White people, you may enjoy this, but this was not for you. That's kind of the point we start. And, like, Doug, did you have anything specifically? Yeah, no, like, Doug, do you want to, like, lead us (laughs) off on this kind of train of thought? Uh, as the resident black guest for this episode, yeah, um, I, (laughs) that was very exciting. Like, yeah, white people see the movie, buy 10 tickets to it, uh, well, maybe don't buy a ticket that would have gone to, like, a person of color if it's gonna be sold out, because then that would, that might not look good. Uh, but, (laughs) no, uh, everybody can enjoy this movie, but this was clearly made for black audiences in the same way that even though they're completely different genres, different uh, filmmakers, kind of like I've seen interviews with the cast of Atlanta and they're like, no, this was a black, this was a black show. This was made for black people, but there's something so universal about the experiences and the writing in it that it's just clicking. It clicked with everybody. And this is one thing I think that's actually very important about this film is it is in many ways, a very universal story about, you know, superheroism and about families and about, you know, rising to mantles and so on and so forth. It is a universally very relatable story and in many ways somewhat archetypical. It's very like, you know, Hamlet. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the, the king is dead, long live the king. And part of that is also, it's a wonderful step forward because it is this story with 
black actors and black creators and an African cultural backdrop. This is not, you know, black people doing a Hamlet story, you know, as drug dealers, as criminals, or as prisoners. It's as, you know, sovereign people of their own nation. It's as independent walking entities. And so, like, looking at this as someone who is not black, like, I can see this as, like, this is something I haven't seen. And especially, like, I'm a, you know, critical audience. I do a film podcast. I talk about this shit all the time. But I think for non-critical audiences, they can see this and kind of have a different have a different association in film with black people and with black skin and with black bodies than that they normally have. Because that is, I think, who black people are so often in film is criminals, thugs, laborers, slaves. Like, that is what we see. This is something that is aspirational for black people. And that is not only good for black people, but for people to have a better understanding and a less, you know prejudiced and predefined expectation of what blackness is it's good for all of culture black or white or everybody i think to have represent that's, that's what gets under my skin about the ben shapiro's of the world that they can't like just just let us have this moment because and see recognize that like no representation does matter like i don't believe in censoring artists or forcing the diversity where it doesn't fit but like obviously this the cast for this should be black as fuck an African and like seeing these representations, like you were saying, like it was like African Shakespeare, but without having to adapt it to where it's like about a gangland story and they're drug dealers, you know, like they just got to be royalty and, and it was about this Royal family power struggle, which was, it was beautiful. Yeah. You guys. Can I just say this though? <laughs> Is, I would absolutely love a Gangland Macbeth. Uh, yeah, I'd watch that. That's, uh, did, that's did, been done did a lot, they actually, do, in Shakespearean um, Wait, what's that? Because there's been, like, a lot of, I feel like, modern crime story adaptations of... There was Romeo Must Die, right? With, like, Jet Li. And didn't they have to rewrite that so that he doesn't even get the white woman at the end because of racism? Uh... That's, like, why are you going to do Romeo and Juliet, but then he doesn't get, uh, <laughs> society. Because, again, white supremacy is, is global, F- and it Fucking it Ben sucks. Shapiro's. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to point out about Afrofuturism is Afrofuturism is not just rooted in the future. It's also rooted in the past. And um, the story of Wakanda is not just a story about the future or even about the present. It's also deeply informed by um, African history. So, for instance, the great civilizations in Africa, Mali, Songhai, Vagado, all of those civilizations, um, to a certain extent, are, are kind of brought to bear in the story of Wakanda, um, the story of a place that has this very successful empire, um, has like successful forms of technology and is innovating and doing all this stuff. So it is also very much drawing on this past history that does certainly exist, but oftentimes um, that most people don't know about, too. Um, and that's partly because of this history that um, both you, Doc, and, and you, Doug, have been talking about that gets kind of obscured by these tropes of criminality. So um, I think 
did we want to talk about like some of the deeper themes that we felt were going okay. on? Um, I want to wrap um, this back around to Panther. Afrofuturism for a moment. Yeah. Uh, because I, I think, okay. first of all, this is probably the first, like, mainstream consumption of Afrofuturism that you can find. But also, I kind of want to examine culturally... Uh, uh, sorry, Annie, you had a response to that? Yeah, so that's not actually technically true. Um, Janelle Monet's music has been out there for quite a while, and, and her music has been consumed largely in the mainstream. Um, and, and she is an Afrofuturist. She has been doing this work for a while. I think what's different about this is um, this has moved from uh, a segment of the public that is interested in Afrofuturism and also the arts to a broader popular cultural phenomenon. And, and maybe that's I, part yeah, of what you're I, doing. I think you're both right. Sorry to, to interrupt. Uh, no, I was just like, I think, yeah, Afrofuturism, if you're looking for it or know where to look, it's, like, always kind of been, like, hidden, or not even that hidden in music, because black culture is 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 music. Like, you know, we made all the music ever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, like, this is the first time in cinema, at least, that, like, it's become such a big pop culture moment. It's like, this, this was an epic in every sense of the word. It's like, that like I well I hope that it you know causes a lot of imitators and for Hollywood to, to take notice like oh there's we can we can make money off of making movies like this and we should do that I mean that is the other thing and I want to bring up uh I I think this is a common criticism like because here's the thing I do a lot of atrocity tourism I you know read a lot of things that really shitty people say and like one meme that comes up constantly with this, and I think that this address is a kind of a perfect example to be a counterpoint to this meme is the we was Kangs thing is where, uh, you know, oh, yeah, absolutely. It, to, to explain for those of you who aren't familiar with it is it's this meme of. And I, I, I think it comes from there's a lot of I've seen quite a few Afrofuturistic kind of projects or. Uh, dialogues. It comes from, it comes from Afrocentrism. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's that, where that, it's yeah, that, that's, that's kind of what I was getting. I was looking for the words for it, where it's yeah. like, well, you know, uh, if, like, I, I've seen some fairly ridiculous stuff out there where it's like, well, actually, you know, black people had UFOs and electricity five billion years ago, but then it all got regular. Like these somewhat absurd claims that it seems comes from a point of overcompensation that's a really easy target for kind of this white supremacist thought to go like, look at these people. They're ridiculous. Um, Doc, before we go any further, I just want to address the Afrocentric stuff. Um, so I'm getting my PhD in black studies and I've had to do quite a bit of reading in Afrocentric theory. So I've read Malefi Asante's Afrocentric theory. Um, any claim that Afrocentric ideas are about um, African people receiving technology from aliens are fringe and absolutely not what Afrocentric theory is about at all. Afrocentric theory is about recentering African perspectives in the study of um, the lives of Africana peoples. So that's about not approaching the study of um, the lives of Black people from the perspective of a colonizer. That's what's going on there. Afrocentric theory has been used to 
um, conduct new research on ancient African trade routes, trade between um, Africa, uh, specifically North Africa and Asia, and North Africa and Italy and Greece. Um, so it's been really useful in revealing these histories that have been hidden and concealed because colonizers refuse to acknowledge them in many cases, um, basically erasing these histories of ancient civilizations from the historical canon. And the reason why they did that was because white supremacists believed that um, if they could prove that Africans had no history and had no culture, that this would justify slavery. So Afrocentric theory is really about reclaiming these histories that have been erased and also um, reclaiming a kind of pride in those histories, saying instead of um, this idea that Africana peoples are, are worthless and just slaves, like what the colonizers had told them, instead Afrocentric theorists argue, you know what, no. Black folks are descended from kings and queens and scholars and courtiers, and, and that's really important. So um, the We Was Kang's myth, or meme, I should say, really kind of distorts what Afrocentric theory is. And also in that particular spelling of kings, like that is deliberately making fun of African-American vernacular English. So the We Was Kang's meme is racist and is a product of uh basically digital white supremacy a hundred percent yeah and i think that's what killmonger uh uh kind of envisioned or embodied so well which made me just like fall in love with the character um was 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 that he uh was based, you know, like he comment, he openly was commenting on cultural appropriation in European colonization, like especially in that museum scene. He was like, "How well, how did you guys get this, you know, axe?" You know, so that's I forgot where I was going with this, but uh, all the all the people sharing those we we was king. I haven't even seen that meme actually, but now that I've heard that, it like sadly like isn't. Also, the other sentiment that comes out of this is that black people do not have civilization. And the, that is the thing, is because when you look back, even if you look at just a surface level, the kind of civilizations that stand to, that still stand today, you know, you've got the Egyptian pyramids. These are beautiful, like, amazing acts of engineering. They're all, like, perfectly aligned to cardinal directions. You've got, you know, the measurement of the circumference of the earth from the two out obelisk i think uh one in giza one in cairo i want to say but I, I could be wrong about that you know there was math there was culture there was all these things but this idea that if you disparage black people as ha not having had any kinds of, and there's like this thing where people try to like whitewash it's like actually cleopatra was white all the great leaders like they weren't really black there's um doc, sorry if i could just butt in for a second um, so I want to just kind of like address what you're talking about here so that our listeners have a little bit more context. Um, part of what you're talking about is the argument that ancient Egyptians were white. And um, so Cleopatra was Greek. She's one of like the few cases of an ancient Egyptian queen who was not originally from Africa, like not indigenously African. Um, by contemporary standards, people would probably call her white. However, during the time period, I mean, she would have had olive toned skin pretty much like everybody else in the Mediterranean. Um, 
But what people do is they then use this argument that, well, Cleopatra can be considered white. They they use that and then they're like, oh, I guess Hatshepsut and Nefertiti and Ramesses must have been white too. And that actually goes back to this really old school um, white supremacist narrative about ancient Egypt that started up in the 1850s. And again, this is something that was used to justify slavery. So uh, the idea was that the ancient Egyptian society and culture and writing and math and monumental sculpture was just something that Africans were not intellectually capable of creating. And this came from racist stereotypes of black people as mentally inferior. So um, basically white supremacists argued that, well, if they had no history or culture um, and if they weren't connected to Egypt in any way, then black people could be enslaved. So for like basically two centuries, the United States kind of put out propaganda that said that ancient Egypt was a white society and it wasn't. Um, We know from records, we know from texts, this is not esoteric. Ancient Egypt was a cosmopolitan black society. It would be, you could freely use that term that we use now, black. It definitely works. Um, The kings and queens were mostly indigenously African for a very long time. You would have seen a, a kind of like spectrum of blackness in ancient Egypt from lighter skinned folks from the north to darker complexion folks from the South Sudan. Um, So it was a really cosmopolitan society. So this myth that you're talking about um, is very problematic and it's been an attempt to whitewash the history of ancient Egypt and justify racist attitudes towards black people, um, including the enslavement of black people. And that's really problematic. I just wanted our listeners to know that. Well, that's the danger. Oh, sorry. Not to keep bunny, this is like such an emotional topic for me. Uh, that like cultural appropriation, like yeah, it like erases or whitewashes over the actual history, and it's like we it gets gets so muddled that everyone, even other black people, can't even trace their roots to like where they came from. I don't. I mean, my grandmother's grandfather or great great whatever you know were slaves, but I don't know where they came from. Like, I can't tell you which ship brought them from which part of Africa. I don't know that I would ever be able to find it. I mean, I, get, I don't know, Ancestry.com could do some of their magic, plug me into an Assassin's Creed animus, and then <laughs> let me live the, the memories of my... I don't know that I'd want to live those memories, <laughs> to be honest. I, I, I'll, no. I'll stay here in so. the present where I can be selfish. <laughs> And be uh, safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, who 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 did that routine? Oh, Black Louis, people don't mess around with time travel. Louis C.K. Actually, I think, I think was he? Oh, yeah. He was oh, like, was I can go yeah, into a time was. machine yeah. and go anywhere except the future. But because <laughs> he's he's like, it's not gonna be good for the net. You're not gonna <laughs> white people aren't gonna go from number one to two. You know, <laughs> like it's gonna it'll be a heavy fall. There'll be a record. You guys will be fine. Um. But, yeah, to, 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 go, to go back to kind of my original point, and this is, this is why I really hate this and why I'm bringing up what an example of this is because these are some really ugly kind of mimetics and thought processes and, like, common, like, really unnuanced 
bigotries and thought patterns and like memes, like in the actual sense of the word where it's information that self-propagates and spreads uh, information and misinformation. So the fact is like when you want to look at it, the if you want to look at it from like this kind of civilizations kind of perspective where, you know, gun germs and steel, there were specific advantages that were afforded to Europeans and Americans and so on that kind of led to them having a moment where they could set up shop in Africa, shit all over it, and then keep on shitting on it for the next couple hundred years. And still where We're still to feeling the effects today. Yeah. And to say, but exactly, um, wealth is still flowing out of Africa. Africa is not actually poor in the sense that it is portrayed or that it actually is, but the wealth is flowing out because of, you know, mining conglomerates and all that. More stuff that we don't really want to get into right here. But the fact is, by saying that black people did not have civilizations, that Africa was never advanced, that it was never contributing to a great, that the white Anglo-Saxon tradition is more important and has done more progress, it is a justification to, first of all, erase all that history, but secondly, to yeah. say that they deserve it, that, you know, we have done better, and that is not the case. And it, going back to Black Panther, because we spent such a long time trying for me to try and get to this point, is an example of, it is a great fictional conceit, it is a city-state that is hidden, it is a country that escapes that fate, and yeah, vibranium's kind of a silly magical MacGuffin, but to say to try and look at what a culture yes. would look like unmolested, it is not a crazy. Oh yeah, uh, we. I mean, it kind of is a little bit because of the vibranium, but it's not looking at this as a case of you know we had laser swords in you know 500 BC, so we conquered the world, but except for white people, it's this is not just not technologically, but culturally, what might have come. And it is a, I don't want to say safe and clean and sterile, but it is a, and it's certainly not non-threatening because the way that people are fucking reacting to it, the people losing their shit, but it is, I think, a beautiful example. And it doesn't reek of crazy or conspiracy, it just is. And I think that's part of why you've got stuff like, you know, Ben Shapiro. Fuck Ben you know Shapiro! Ben? Fuck Sincerely from me. Fuck off, you piece of shit. But, like, that's why he's tweeting, like, Wakanda isn't real. And, like, that's why that's such a visceral, guttural reaction from him is because the idea of... It is, in opposition to white supremacy, the idea of a free Africa, of an unmolested black nation... That not only has their own culture, but more advanced culture. Well, you could argue the, the some of the parts of their culture were more data in terms of traditionalism but that was like kind of the one of the conflicts of the film was Wakanda finding their national identity you know well I think um, and yeah, we I also th have old traditions too like even thinking about in the United States like we have things that are holdovers our constitution yeah. is how many hundreds of years old we stay we make our children say oaths of allegiance in schools like so these definitions of, like, tradition and modernity, too, like, I think this movie gives us the space to kind of question those. Yeah, not just like, for hey. African cultures, but all cultures. Sorry. Yeah, well, the, yeah. Well, the, that, that is the thing I want to say is one thing that is also, very, I think, a very destructive way of looking at things that we very typically do is we look at things as being along a single axis, a binary progression, a spectrum from, you know, uh, mud in the dirt, to space is this single axis of progress and 
that is not how society works. We are multifaceted, fascinating, complex creatures and societies with these crazy behaviors. To say that things either get better or worse along an axis and that all those things are connected is to ignore a lot of the complications of why things happen. Because here's the thing, though, to have that spectrum, to have that be the only axis by which you measure a civilization, that is a easy way to say my civilization is here. Your civilization is there. We are more advanced. You are less worthy. OK, um, so one thing that I want to bring up is what is very interesting to me about this film is it is actually in many ways, it's a very typical, structurally, it's very, in many ways, a very typical Marvel film. But also, it is in some ways antithetical to the Marvel formula. Because here's the thing. A superhero story almost universally kind of revolves around a, the great man theory. And I think there actually is a theory out there called the great man theory. This is just something that was phrasing from my head and the way I want to describe things. But... The central moments in this and the conflict arises from great men and from the failure to be great men because the great man theory is like this idea of this Randy and Uberich is that a single man has power. A single man makes a movement. A single man or fish man. History. Hell yeah, fish man. But that's the thing is, you know, you have your Franz Ferdinand's, you know, you have the you have like like we look at history and history is often very simplified where we look at the decisions of one man. We look at Abe Lincoln. We look at George Washington. We look at, you know, uh, Henry VIII. We look at all these things, and we see this history that's been passed on where we only see the actions of one man. And we look at them always as deliberate actions. We never consider paralysis or indecision or circumstance. We never see the families or the social circles that influence them to act as they or do. Or pure luck and, and coincidence. Like, just cos cosmic Absolutely. coincidence, which, not to be nihilistic, it, like that's probably the only reason we're all here, in that the universe formed in this specific way that we can talk about Black Panther and a accident i mean it, on a podcast it's like <laughs> none of this was planned by anyone i mean i don't know yeah. what you guys spiritual beliefs are but i don't think that this is anyone's design uh because that one the idea that robs people of their agency in life but like i don't like yeah this is all of, all of life and like you were saying the axis of history like you even if that was the trajectory of like humanity going from stick in the mud to space like that wasn't like a planned historical narrative that it just happened that way and th and that is what kind of this is because this is not the story of black panther black panther is already black panther at the beginning of this film but it is about wakanda and the wakandan culture and the wakandan royal family and the the, the way all these things intersect and in many ways killmonger is your archetypical Marvel villain is he's a dark mirrored inversion of Black Panther. He's, you know, the son of royalty, but this one, instead of being raised in Wakanda and, and in tradition is raised in America with this diasporic kind of aesthetic to his life. And one is warlike, one is peaceful and reconciliatory. And it's very much, you know, it's Obadiah Shane all over again. However, they are all failed great men. Um, in particular, a brilliant moment that stands out to me is when uh, T'Challa 
is in the spirit realm and he yells, you were all wrong. Yes. And the music just cuts. That moment is, my whole theater gasped. And that is the thing is all of these things, all of the strife in this comes from people trying to be great men and failing. Uh, T'Chaka wanted to be a great man. He wanted to maintain his brother's memory and that is why there is this secrecy. Uh, T'Challa's insecurity and paralysis comes from his desire to be a great man like his father. It is this failure to understand the the what the reality of this kind of Randy Ubermensch is. It's paved with pain and context that we don't understand. We only see results. We only see projected images. We don't see people when we see great men. Killmonger wants to be a great man. He wants to rise up and be the focal point of a revolution. Yes. And that's what he is. Because that is the other thing, is uh, Killmonger saw T'Chaka as a great man. He saw him as someone who made the decision to kill his father, who, you know, disparse and purposefully, is it's about centering a narrative around a single point. When narratives in life and in fiction, are complicated, organic things. Yes. Uh, and it, particularly, like, I, I think it's heartbreaking to see King T'Chaka in the spirit realm, you know, tr we basically weeping. And I think this is summed up in one line is, it is difficult for a good man to be king. Yeah. Because to be a, to be a, Good man is to be fallible and to make difficult decisions. And to be a great man is to be decisive and absolute and unyielding. Yeah, and I think if I can add to that, um, this perspective of the great man, this idea, this is a 19th century European-originated idea. Um, and it informs the way that we tell history. The way that we tell history about kings is it is difficult to be a good king. The way this movie tells that story is it is difficult to be a good man yeah. and to be a king. So it's talking about power and it's these nuanced like difficulties that you encounter as somebody who is trying to be there for your people and trying to do these things and having to deal with these very difficult situations. So I, I really love your reading of this um, great man theory because I think what this movie allows us to do is to interrogate great man theory as a Eurocentric mode of thought, mode of thinking. Because um, there are so many people in this movie who are participating in making Wakanda what it is. Um, not just T'Challa, not just M'Baku. Um, it's, it's all of the other people who are part of this, including Ramonda as well, um, the Queen Mother. So yeah, this this is and, really and Shuri, right? That that was his sister, right? She was oh, she, she's like solely responsible for like all their current technological uh, progress. So it was like she, in <laughs> an argument could be made that she would be more worried. I mean, she even kind of makes the joke that she should have been uh, the leader or or queen instead of T'Challa. And it's like I could I could maybe see that argument. You know, she's she did. She did a lot for what Wakanda is and could be. The Great Man Theory, I think, has this kind of wraparound and symbiosis with toxic masculinity. Because one of the themes that really broke my heart was uh, the land of the dead with Killmonger 
you know, with Eric yeah. and his father. And both of them are looking at each other and they're discussing and they're being very roundabout of discussing what must be done to be a great man. And they are both weeping because that is, I think, part of the core of why he's such an engaging character is he is ruthless and intimidating and terrifying, but he is inside. He is weeping because this all comes from a p place of pain yeah. uh, where... T'Challa is this privileged person. He's raised in royalty and in comfort. He has this support structure that allows him to perhaps be perceived as a great man, even though there is much great difficulty in it. This structure, this family, this nation supports and guides him. In the Black Panther is not a singular entity. It's not a Randy and Ubermensch. It is a product of Wakanda. And Killmonger is the exact opposite of that, and that is where all this pain comes from. Well, and he's also acted upon by these outside forces, right? So, like, if we want to really point to the place at which the Marvel Cinematic Universe and even the comics themselves fold in and fall down like a house of cards, it's when you think about the kinds of structures set up in this world that enable these things to happen to Killmonger um, and also force him to do certain things. Um, so thinking about Tony Stark's weapons industry, um, I'm thinking about some of the stuff that gets described in the movie in terms of policing violence, um, economic disparities, all of these different sorts of things, which uh, the movie and also the comics imply are not present in Wakanda. And that really is what shapes um, Killmonger's character, is being acted upon in this way and, and sort of being... Kind of, he makes his own choices to enter into this sort of devil's bargain with these very frightening people, but um, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that he's also been shaped by these other circumstances that are outside of parental control. Yeah, I 100% agree, because it's clear that um, Killmonger may, or let's just call him Eric, since we're humanizing him, and that is his name. You know, Killmonger is a title that, you know, a nickname by the military given to him. Um, in, in this instance, uh, but he, it's clear from, you know, like when he kills Kloss that he, he, he never made any qualms that, you know, he wasn't like a super racist evil dude. Like he was using him as a means to an end, but he was also influenced by not only working with him, but his father's, you know, prior relationship with Kloss. Cause that's who he originally stole the vibranium for. So he's had all these outside influences and just growing up in America and seeing the systemic oppression that, like, it seeps through every facet for for black culture that, like, is like it couldn't help but form uh, his worldview. And what a fucking seductive worldview it was. Like, I, first I was just surprised. It was like, oh, my God, they're actually going here for a Marvel movie. I mean, I knew that just from reviews and hypes is like, yeah, this is a black film. But I didn't know it was going to get that black and that this was going to be... I was... I mean, hashtag Killmonger was right, or, you know, Killmonger did nothing wrong, but uh, I was, more so than any recent movie villain, like, I was just so, and not to keep comparing villains back to, um, you know, Nolan's Dark Knight, like, that's the Holy Grail, I think his trilogy's overhyped, and he's kind of like a shit writer, but I loved... Ledger's Joker in the sense that like rewatching the film I just get seduced by his world his anarchistic worldview that I was kind of like yeah society should 
burn, maybe. Um, so, like, Killmonger in that same way, the longer he would talk or, like, go on his monologues about what needs to be done with, um, with the revolution. And, like, Silvio was saying, like, from his ancestral plane flashbacks or whatever, like, you can tell this all comes from a place of pain. Like, I'm sure if he had the ideal circumstances or, you know, grew up in privilege, like, like T'Challa, he wouldn't want to do all this. He doesn't take joy. It, it doesn't, he doesn't, he never came across like Klaus where he like was just giddy to murder people. Like he wasn't, he wasn't doing it because it was like fun for him. He just, right. It was like a necessary evil that he recognized that like, uh, like T'Challa's father was telling him, like, you know, it's hard to be a good man and a good king, or a great man and a good king, however the quote goes, but, like, Killmonger had already accepted that um, kind of cognitive dissonance, and he was ready to, like, you know, do whatever it took to make his ideal world vision come to fruition. Yeah, mm, yeah and I think that kind of comes out, too, because there were a couple times in the movie where he, like, shoots or injures some of the women around him, too. Um, like his girlfriend. Not just the men. Like his girlfriend. He um, kind of murders He shoots his through her to, to, to get Klaus, and I don't think he wanted to do that. He had just already... He was past the point of no return, for sure, at that point. And he had probably just accepted a long time ago that, yeah, you gotta crack a few eggs to make an omelet, you know? Mm. Yeah. Doc, what do you think about that? For those of you not benefiting from the video stream that we don't record, I've been ra- waving my hands because I've been so excited to get on this point. But here's the thing is he keeps inflicting pain upon himself. Yes. This is something I'm thinking about just now is because here's the thing. He does kill his girlfriend, but I don't think that means he didn't care for her. Uh, and it's it's a bit part, and it's very small, but it's very quick, is when they're in the ambulance, they are triumphant and celebrating together. They're just making out like crazy. And I do actually think what's what's important is that I actually do think that Killmonger does he accepts that what he wishes to do is in some sense evil. He wishes to inspire blood and revolution and the system the you know inversion of the scales because he doesn't want to fix the system, he wants to flip it. And I think he accepts on some level that he is evil and he will do evil acts. But it's all pain because I actually think he does not hate T'Challa. I think he hates, you know, Wakanda and Wakanda. He hates the state of things. But I do think that there is some kind of grudging respect or like. But like I like he like I said, he did everything to kill you, to kill the Black Panther, to become to as part of his plan. Is he is full of pain, and I think everything he does to get for that is more willing sacrifices, more bodies on the pyre to burn down the world and remake it. Is he is doing everything to be a great man and that is destroying him. It's a necessary evil to quote Bane. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Also known as the best Bane impersonation on this podcast. Excuse me, I do not think that is the case. (laughs) Nope. You, Put it away. You were no. born. I, <laughs> you oh really adapted to the shadows. What have we done? I was born dark. <laughs> oh, God. 
Okay. But no, like, does that make, does that read make sense to you guys? Because here's the thing, the girlfriend thing, it can be yeah. very easily read as him, like, abusing someone's affections to, uh, you know, make them more loyal to him, to, you know, pull an altered carbon for a second, you know, to create a pack. But I think it's a much more interesting read, and especially considering how we are shown his sensitivity in the flashbacks mm -hmm. and his pain as a child. I do think it's a more interesting read, and I think it resonates more with me to say that he does care. I think that's a more accurate read, and uh, even to compare it to other comic book things, like, I don't see it as him using his girlfriend in the same abusive way that, like, the Joker was clearly manipulating Harley Quinn. Like, like, I fucking hate those memes that, like, there's some power couple that is, like, like... Oh, fuck that like, noise. Like, no, he was abusing her. Uh, but I don't see... I didn't get that vibe from Killmonger. I think as evil as Kloss was, uh, he was right on the money comparing them to Bonnie and Clyde. Like, that they were just kind of, like, these re societal rebels that were kind of just, like, drawn together from their passion, you know, for a mutual cause. But, unfortunately... She stood in the way, literally, of like what he needed to accomplish to make his his goal their goal. And they're I mean, I assume that she she was working with him and they were in a relationship. They shared this passion about the revolution that needed to happen that like, you know, it was just like, well, shit, I have to do this now, even though we both uh, care so much about the same thing. And he probably did care for her. Yeah, potentially. I, I do like this reading that is thinking of Eric as being somebody who is constantly scarring himself through this process of trying to make social change. I mean, that literally manifests on his right. body, right? So, like, I think this narrative is reflected visually, too, in there. And it doesn't make what he does um, in shooting his girlfriend right oh, by no. any means. It doesn't, certainly. Um, in fact, it just makes him a more complicated um, and also kind of morally ambiguous it person. It makes him a more tragic villain in figure, which are, which are some of my it favorite does. villains, where it's like you can see their worldview and agree with where they're coming from, even if they know and you know their actions are clearly evil. One of my favorite examples was like, I forget what his actual title was, but the Elf King in uh, Hellboy 2. Like, I... Oh, yeah. He he uh, was totally right that, like, humans had taken advantage of their truce in the pact, but, like, you know, he, he was doing all these destructive, evil things in order to right that wrong. But he probably... I mean, I need to rewatch it because maybe this is a totally invalid read and he was just a maniacal sociopath, but I don't think he enjoyed doing the evil things he needed to do. He was just, like, one of those tragic, reluctant villains that... Just like in the same way we have reluctant heroes, which are like, oh, I guess I get, I have to go on this great quest to save the world. The villain, the best villains think they are the hero. You know, I, I, I forgot who's. There yeah. was some. Now, yeah. That that's actually the thing, though. I don't think that Killmonger thinks of himself necessarily as the hero. Not, not as I the think hero. he sees himself as. Well, no. Here's the thing. I think he defines himself as a great man. And this is the thing. All these sacrifices made all the blood along his path to victory. If he had won, would all be swept under the rug. The pain, the tragedy, the sacrifice would all be erased to history eventually. And a reason I, a reason I think that this is a read, that he is, 
you know, a person who is sacrificing himself and his humanity to do this is because he appreciates beauty. And that is explicitly his ending is he sees the Wakandan sunrise or sun, sun no, he sees the Wakandan sunset and it's the most beautiful sunset, thing in the world. Yeah. But here's the thing. Uh, this movie in the final fight went in a direction I wasn't expecting because once he was stabbed, I kind of got that John Wick 2 vibe where it's like the blade is in your heart. If you remove it, you die. I was expecting it to be leverage is, you know, concede and we can save you something like that. Or that he would pull it out himself and say, I choose to die on my own terms. That's what I was expecting uh, because it would be about defiance and victory and this kind of Pyrrhic victory where it's like, no, I made you kill me. But instead he did that on top of the mountain, seeing the sunset and he weeps for that. It's the most beautiful thing. This would have been not his reward, but this is what he wanted for his people. This is the thing that he denied himself, that he almost destroyed in an effort to try and achieve his goals is I do think it's a much bolder direction and certainly I think a more visionary ending than I would have come up with for this exact scenario. And so I think that's such a powerful moment that really defines it as that he sacrificed everything and lost. Yeah, and the thing that emotionally resonated with me for that, and there was kind of shades of the end of uh, Panther's arc in Civil War, that, like, uh, he saw where Killmonger was coming from. Like, he takes mer not mercy, I mean, because he... Uh, well, I, I guess mercy for Killmonger, because he's not, like, executing him on the spot. Like, he's escorting him to the cliff so that he can watch. He knew that seeing the sunset was important to him, because he had been an outcast and never, you know, been able to have the rightful Wakandan up upbringing that he deserved. Like, I think in that moment, Panther knew that Killmonger was not necessarily right, but that... Uh, that he understood his pain and where he was coming from, and he was empathizing with him, and is like, okay, well, this is my cousin here. He may have, like, tried to kill me and usurp my throne, but, like, I can give this to him. I'm gonna let him see this beautiful moment before he dies. Yeah, that was such a sad moment. <laughs> and... But it was kind of like weirdly profound, and I, I think that was an excellent way to end the film to kind of like bring it all Absolutely. toward a close. And I think it also kind of concludes his identity, also because bury me in the sea. It's like I I can't remember if the line was like my ancestors, but like he does not, he is not Wakanda. He is not Wakandan, and while while he is cult, he is by bloodline from there. Their culture is not something that he was raised in. And ultimately, I think he identifies and like to go to kind of the American instance of, you know, identity politics and the black identity is he is not Wakandan. He is African. He is African-American. And that's kind of the tragedy of his life. Well, and it's a direct call out too, to to T'Challa, right? So it's also a way of saying like there are people who are kind of like you from your same continent who were enslaved for hundreds of years and this was the culture that I took part in and was sort of like raised in without any form of choice and like how does that make you feel which is uh, oh that's such a difficult line to leave to child yeah. with 
but it's such an important and which is important for both of their arcs because like you were saying like kind of in those final moments killmonger is accepting that he ultimately was an outsider like he's not wakandan even by blood like rightfully he should have been raised in that he's african-american but uh, t'challa i think through you know not just his experience with Killmonger and his near death trip to the ancestral plane, he realizes that there was a lot of truth in what Killmonger was saying, maybe not in the way that he was trying to go about it and what he was doing, but he's finally like stepping outside of this Wakandan isolationism, uh, that they've been practicing for like, since their inception. I mean, I, they had been, been lying to the whole world this whole time that they were like a third world African nation. And finally at the end, it's kind of like that, I am Iron Man moment where he's just like, like, nah, we're, we're Wakanda and we're like technologically advanced. So that's, I'm Black Panther. It's, it's a trip actually. Like it is a fun, amazing superhero movie, but there is a lot of depth and this arises directly out of it being a black film, a film about Africa and about African peoples and African Americans. And these themes that are, interwoven with the cast and the writing and the narrative of it. Because when you look at Black Panther, the comic, it directly addresses themes from American civilization. And it's not puerile escapist fantasy. It's actually a quite a profound film, especially by Marvel standards. And it's wonderful. And I think, oh yeah, fucking hell. I'm going to go see it a third time. I need to see it multiple more times. Maybe even this weekend. I mean, like just thinking about it gets me so excited. And it's almost, like, unfair to not only Black Panther's a film, but probably other superhero movies to even compare it or call it a superhero movie. Oh, yeah. It's like, the, it's, like, the same way I feel about when I recommend Legion to people. Like, I don't want to call it a superhero show. It's, like, it's it's kind of an X-Men spinoff, but I don't want to say that because it's better than all that. <laughs> you know, it's so much more. Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, absolutely. I think this is a text that people are going to be mining for years to oh, come. Oh, there's going to be some brilliant Because there's pieces. still, there's more to it than even what we've gotten to. Like, we've only scratched the surface. Oh, yeah, no, Black I've, Panther, I've still got, like, an hour really cool. or more of content I still want to talk about, but we're on. Oh, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, if we Anyways, had more time uh, and unlimited yeah. caffeine, like, I could, I could do this all day. Unlimited caffeine. I mean, I, I have more okay. tea. The six-hour podcast. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this has been the movie more. I've been your host, Sylvia Armour. You guys can follow me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I've been Annie Neller. And as always, you all can follow me on Instagram at, at Lights and Music. And I'm Douglas Davenport. You can find me on Twitter at The Duggernaut. And I also go by Schrodinger's Dog, a.k.a. DJ Lovecraft, a.k.a. Young Camu, a.k.a. Lil Sisyphus, a.k.a. The Notorious N-I-E-T-Z. Uh, also, I don't rap or make music. I do, however, <laughs> have a media blog, uh, jizzcritic.com. Uh, so check that out when there's actually something to check out on the site. Uh, <laughs> and I swear it won't be porn, you dirty, filthy minds. It's jizz, the musical genre from Star Wars. Look it up. Google it. George. <laughs> That's a real thing. George, it's real. George okay. Lucas real. knew exactly what he was doing. That's all I have to say on that. Anyways, <laughs> our intro music, as always, is Trouble by Ipso Factibus. You can find a link to their Bandcamp and the uh, EP of the same name from there. 
Uh, we are supported, as always, by our patrons. Uh, please check out our Patreon if you think, you know, what we do is cool and maybe send us a dollar. If not, either way, thank you so much for listening. Uh, please check out our Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes, Podcatcher, wherever you get your podcasts, we'll be there. Leave us a review, follow us on social media, the links are all in the show notes. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy, have a great time wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, and uh, Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever, y'all. Bye-bye.